Would you open your Bibles up, please, to the book, uh, well, open up to 1 Corinthians first, please. 1 Corinthians 11. Beginning with verse 27. Our sermon text is actually James 5:13 to 16. Uh, but first, I'd like to set the context because this morning we have the privilege of coming to the Lord's table. You see that the deacons have set the table for us down here in front. And so as we come to this table, for a whole bunch of reasons, uh, but principally for the reason that there are specific instructions about how to approach this table. It's fitting that at times we take uh, a, a, a sermon and focus particularly on how God has commanded that we come to this table. Um, however, the reason that this week we're studying and the title of the sermon is Confess Your Sins to One Another. The reason that this week we're focusing on this particularly is that um, there's been a fair amount of sickness recently in our congregation, and you all ought to know the normal way that the elders uh, work with you if you are sick. If you ask for the elders to uh, lay hands on you and pray for you for healing, they will, before they pray over you and lay hands on you, they will read from the book of James. And we have been doing this multiple times over the last few weeks. I mentioned this last week, and I want you to know that... Uh, um, the pattern we follow is directly from this James text. But before we get to the James text, I want it to be in the context of the Lord's Supper this morning. So bear with me. Let me ask you about your mother. Was she anything like mine? My mother had a lot of rules. One rule was you didn't sit and read a book if she was working, which meant you never sat and read a book. Unless you hid from her. And it didn't do any good to stay up until 3 in the morning because she was still thinking about working. So uh, I come by my late hours honestly. That's one thing you just learned, interestingly enough. My mother also uh, was most intense when it came to the dining room table. Um, and she had a whole host of rules for the dining room table. And if I just stop and think, I can hear them. I can even hear her voice. Uh, one of them was, Timothy, Timothy, strong and able, get your elbows off the table. <laughs> Any of you heard that? Taylor has. Um, another one was, sit up straight. She hated that. Another one was, well, it wasn't at the table, but she always tells us to stop walking like elephants. Uh, she would say to my brother David, uh, David, stop tipping back in your chair. Nathan, where does your napkin belong? Tim, chew with your mouth closed. David, don't talk with your mouth full. Tim, sit back down, Tim. We're not done yet. You ask before you're excused from the table. And so on. Now, probably many of you have these rules, and if you don't, they're, they're good rules to have so that your son, when he grows up, can find some woman that's willing to live with him as wife. <laughs> uh, 
I'm really serious about that. <laughs> but there was one thing that my mother was more intense about than anything else, and that was you didn't even think about coming to my mother's table unless you'd washed your hands, and it wasn't any good to so just use water. You had to use soap. And you see where I'm headed. How ludicrous for us to have a rule about how we come to the table in the evening at our home. And yet to think that we can come to the table where we spiritually eat the body and drink the blood of Christ without washing. Makes no sense at all, does it? And we would not be surprised to know, as usual, there's a connection between our ordinary lives and God. And the connection is that God also demands that when we come to his table that we're clean. And I want that to be the context within which we discuss the confession of sins because you'll see here in 1 Corinthians 11 that this is the classic location to go for the words of institution of this sacrament that we have that we celebrate this morning. And part of the instructions we find, we pick up in verse 26. It says what? It says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, in other words, uh, this is a very, very heavy-duty thing that you're doing here. Therefore. Therefore what? Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Now, if any of you know the Lord, you know you don't want to be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But... Verse 28, a man must what? Examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly, speaking of the body of Christ. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. This is the same uh, sort of... Uh, roundabout way of saying death when Jesus says she's just asleep. Many of you are even dead, a number of dead. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So you see that the context for coming to the Lord's Supper, it's very clear from Scripture, not from me, that when we come to the Lord's table, that we are to judge ourselves. Now, what would we judge ourselves for? Well, um, it's not talking about judging ourselves for wearing white socks with black shoes. It's not talking about judging ourselves for uh, trivial things, things which have no moral content. It's talking about things that cause us to be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. In other words, sin, failure. Uh, sin is any lack of conformity to the law of God, whether not doing something he's commanded us to do or doing something that he has commanded us not to do. In other words, we don't in this church just look at the things that we do that are wrong. but And this is much more intense. We look at the things that we don't do that we should do. And uh, that's, that's, that can be very depressing if we don't live in the grace of Christ, to think of all the things that we ought to do that we don't do. And so, as we come to the Lord's table this morning, the first thing we need to see is that this instruction about the Lord's Supper tells us that anyone who takes part in this table unworthily is guilty of sinning against the body and blood of God's Son, Jesus Christ. So this is serious business. 
that the punishment, the punishment for being guilty of the body and blood of Christ is what? And what does Scripture say? Not what am I saying. What does Scripture say? The punishment is what? The punishment is what? You can just say it. And sickness and death. So don't let anybody say to you that there's no connection between sin and sickness and death. The connection is not uh, an absolute this for that connection. The connection is such that we often make a mistake in thinking we understand the connection about others and about ourselves. The connection ought not to be something that we go around saying, you know, like the, like the Roman Catholics used to say about Calvin at the time of the Reformation. Calvin was sick all the time. And the Catholics would point to Calvin and say, he's sick because he's violated the church and he's sinning and God's judging him. Well, no, I believe that Calvin's sickness was a wonderful gift from God that kept him completely humiliated and dependent and clinging to God, much like the Apostle Paul's sickness. His thorn in the flesh kept him weak so that Christ would be strong in him. Do you, you recognize I'm just quoting Scripture in what I'm saying. So the connection is not such that we can go around saying, oh, I hear Tim coughing. Well, you know, I guess he would cough after the way he talked to his wife yesterday. Now, I, I use a trivial thing like that so that you understand that when somebody uh, all of a sudden has an aneurysm and is struck down, how, we ought not to point at that person and say, well, he was a notorious sinner. Now, there are times where God does break in in wrath on people. And the scriptures are filled with this. If you know the Bible, you know that there are many, many men that the Bible says he was very wicked and so God killed him. Can, can, can you hear that? You hear all the stories in Scripture about that? But normally when we see things that are in our lives that are sin, and when we get sick, there ought to be a self-examination that goes with it. And this text about the Lord's Supper is an obvious text to say, if we come to the table unworthily, the Bible is very clear in saying that some have gotten sick and others have died because they have come to this table without self-examination and without being worthy of the table. Do you understand that? And this is not God being a wrathful and vengeful, uh, punitive, uh, um, arbitrary, dictatorial, authoritarian, nasty God. This is God's love. It would be perverse if something that would cause us such terrible judgment from God did not have some hint in this life of what was coming in the judgment seat. Do you understand that? I mean, if there is a judgment coming which is so intense that anything you've gone through here on earth is absolutely nothing, then it would be loving for our Father in Heaven to give us all kinds of clues, all kinds of manifestations in this life that, that direct us to know what is going to come. Okay, And this is one place where it's real clear that there is a judgment that's coming. And for Christians, where every secret will come into the open. Okay. Now, I told you that our sermon text is in the book of James, and I'd like you to turn there with me now, please. Please turn with me to the book of James, chapter 5. James, chapter 5, and we're going to read 
verses 13 to 16. It's very interesting, by the way, that um, Thomas Manton, who I'm going to quote later, who was a 17th century uh, reformer, uh, wonderful pastor, uh, on this exact text goes on at length about how uh, songs made up by people at his time, not just the Psalter, but songs made up by his people at the time he was alive were appropriate for worship. And he was taking off from the end of verse 13, he is to sing praises. So don't ever think that, uh, that it's somehow less spiritual for people today who you think are superficial to make up their new songs. It's wrong. David Canfield is making up new hymns all the time, and somehow we've succeeded in having him in the sanctuary worshiping with us for three years without ever singing one. But I hope sometime we will. <laughs> all right. And many of you are making new songs. Well, let's read now. From God's Word, James chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. Is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins to one another, and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. This is the Word of God, and it's not just for yesterday. It's eternally true. Now, let me make a couple of comments, if you will, about the first couple of verses before we get into the heart of what I'd like to speak to you on this morning, namely the command to confess your sins to one another in verse 16. If you have been in the Roman Catholic Church, or if you have relatives who are Roman Catholics, or if you know anything about the Reformation, you know that this is the text that the sacrament, as the Roman Catholics call it, a sacrament of extreme unction is taken from. Uh, extreme unction is where uh, someone is close to death and the priest comes and uses a special uh, anointing oil with some special things in it and it's had some special things done to it. And so it, 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 it's effective. Now... Um, I just want to make a couple comments about that. That's not the theme this morning, but first of all, note, this text nowhere says that you should wait until you're sure somebody's dying to give them this ministry, does it? Look at the Bible. It doesn't say if you are about to die. It says if anyone is sick. Now, over, the, over, the, over church history, uh, students of Scripture in positions of leadership have felt that this is not something to be done when you hit your thumb with a hammer. All right. In other words, this is a serious moment where serious diseases, things which do put your life in jeopardy, should be brought before the church in and the elders serving as the church. Uh, but on the other hand, you should not wait until you're on your deathbed. And... Uh, 
that is in fact what the Roman Catholic Church does at the moment of death. They come, they give uh, the sacrament, uh, believing that that's the uh, the way to obey this text. Um, and from the beginning, Protestant reformers have said, no, this is not a sacrament. This is not something that has been commanded that we do. Uh, this is not something that's to be done only at the time of death, but this is to be what? What do the reformers say? This is never to be done because the Roman Catholics have abused it, and therefore it really is so dangerous that um, it really ought not to be done. And yet that's what most of us believe about the text. I, I imagine if I were asked for a show of hands, almost none of you would raise your hand that you've ever gone to the elders and asked for them to, to anoint you and to lay hands on you and pray for your healing. Now, for some of you, it's because you've never been that sick. Uh, but many of us really believe that it, this, this text is so perverted um, by many, including Benny Hinn, and I won't get into that this morning, but yes, anything Benny Hinn does based on this text is unbiblical. And I mean exactly what I'm saying. Uh, if you listen and watch that stuff on television, you should stay far away from it. And I could give you a whole host of reasons from Scripture why Benny Hinn is just as wrong about the practice of this as the Roman Catholic Church. All right? But we do not reject the proper use of a biblical thing because it's improperly used, right? And from the beginning of the Reformation, the Reformers have believed, and you'll hear later in the sermon, the Reformers have believed that this text should be obeyed specifically the part of the text I want to focus on this morning, which is confess your sins to one another. That specific part of the text, the Reformers, Luther, Calvin, the early church fathers, Tertullian, uh, all kinds of leaders of the church down through the ages have just taken it as for granted that this text should be obeyed. Now, it's interesting. Some of them believe that oil was a part of the Hebrew life, and therefore oil should not be used anymore. And this gets into the very complicated issue of when you get commands in Scripture, sometimes are part of the, is part of the command a culturally conditioned thing of the people at the time that does not have universal application. And the minute I say that, you're all thinking, oh yeah, like women being silent in church. And yes, like women being silent in church. You say, oh yes, like head coverings. Yes, like head coverings. Now, does that mean that I think that the order of the sexes and that head coverings and that the use of oil are all culturally conditioned things and have no application to those of us who in 2002 are very sophisticated and highly educated and talk loudly in restaurants and use big words? No, I don't think that. But your mind is going in the right direction when you ask the question, which of these things is a universal and which is particular to the Hebrew context or to the Greek context? And so when we fight over that about particular texts, it's good to fight over it because there are answers. There is truth to that question. Now, I'm sorry, I've whet your appetite on that, but we're not going to go further into it. I'll tell you what I believe. I, 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 I don't know about oil, and I, I don't know about head coverings, but I don't believe that the issue of the relationship of men and women 
is cultural because Paul points back to the creation account and lodges it there. And therefore, I think it's universal. If Paul hadn't said Adam was created first and then Eve, then I think we could argue about it. But when he says that, he lodges it prior to sin, back at the beginning in the action of God. And therefore, I think clearly that's binding. And some other time we'll get into head coverings, although people who have been here long enough know that I've been promising to do that for years and have never done it yet. (laughs) Now, let's come to the issue of oil. Um, Thomas Manton believes oil is a culturally conditioned thing and ought not to be used. He says that the Hebrews saw oil as a sign of God's benediction. And you think of uh, how blessed are brothers dwelling together in unity, like oil running down, all right? In Psalm 23, it speaks about oil in this way. And so he says it was not a healing oil, but it was an oil that stood for, that represented God's ministry to the person. So he says you don't need to use oil. But he does say that the laying on of hands is required. Now, as it happens here, we use oil. Because it seems like unless you have a good reason not to obey a specific thing in Scripture, you ought to go ahead and, and do it. So that's how we do it. Now, What about the issue of confess your sins to one another? That's a part of this text. And I don't think anybody can make a case that that was culturally conditioned. That was something that the Jews were particularly good at. That was something that was in Hebrew culture, Greek culture, Roman culture. I mean, it would be nice if that were true, wouldn't it? But I want to make the case this morning that, in fact, it wouldn't be nice if that were true. In fact, I want to make the case that if you have not practiced the discipline of confessing your sins to one another, that you've been missing one of God's glorious gifts to you. And that you ought to jump into it like you jump into a swimming pool of cold water on a 102 degree, 95% humidity day. Because it is a glorious gift to the Christian that our Father has given us. So I want, right from the beginning, to get you to agree to reorient yourself so that you're prepared to accept, hypothetically prepared to accept, the possibility that confessing our sins to one another is a privilege. Now, what about confessing our sins to one another? Well, let's start not with confessing our sins to one another. Let's start with confessing our sins. Do we all know that confessing our sins is something that we ought to do? Now, remember earlier I was talking about the connection between sickness and sin. And if you were listening earlier to one of the readings of Scripture, flip with me to Psalm 103, you'll see how just incidental this is in Scripture. It just comes up without even thinking about it. All right, In Psalm 103, we see it. Just incidentally, it makes a connection there in verses 2 and 3. It says what? It says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits, who pardons all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases. Pardons your iniquities, heals your diseases. And you know that scholars of Scripture will tell you that it's not accidental that the Holy Spirit chose to have those two in that text right together and that the pardoning of the iniquities came before the healing of the diseases. Okay? Now, how else could I make this case to you? Well, you'll see, if you'll turn with me to Matthew 9, 2, 
Again, it's just an incidental appearance. And this is our Lord, and we see that this is a constant in his ministry of healing. In Matthew 9-2, we read this. They brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed, seeing their faith. Jesus said to the paralytic, Take courage, son, your what? Sins are forgiven. Paralytic sins are forgiven. Isn't that interesting? Okay, flip over to John 5.14, please. And there again, we just see what we could repeat over and over again. This connection between sickness and sin. John chapter 5, verse 14. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple. This is the paralytic at the pool of Bethesda. And said to him, Behold, you have become well. What? Do not sin anymore, so that nothing worse happens to you. So again, this is just a normal thing where when we're looking to God for healing, that we need to examine ourselves and confess our sins. And Jesus made this emphasis so often in his healing ministry. He doesn't just heal their bodies, but he says your sins are forgiven. Your faith has made you whole. So we are called to look at ourselves in self-examination, and we are called to confess our sins. In Proverbs 28.13, we read this. It's a command that's given to us by God, and it says this. Proverbs 28.13, what? He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. And that's exactly what we see in the ministry of Jesus, isn't it? They find compassion when they confess their sins in faith and bring their sickness and their sin to Jesus. Now, our church is under the authority of the summary of biblical teaching known as the Westminster Standards. And in the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 15, we read this. The section, the chapter you see, this is the full chapter, that's all it is. And it's called Of Repentance Unto Life. And this is what it says. I'm going to read excerpts from it throughout the sermon. Point number one, it says, Repentance unto life is an evangelical grace. The doctrine whereof is to be preached by every minister of the gospel as well as that of faith in Christ. Now, if, you, if you're listening carefully, you're thinking, well, why was that last phrase added as well as that of faith in Christ? And you get the answer when you read Luther's instructions to parish visitors in his miscellaneous volumes where he says that it's always the habit of pastors to preach faith but not repentance. And so in the chapter on repentance, it says repentance unto life is an evangelical grace. In other words, when I said earlier, dive into it like a swimming pool on a hot day, that's an evangelical grace. That, that water is uh, good news to you. All right. So repentance unto life is a good news grace. The doctrine whereof is to be preached by every minister of the gospel as well as that of faith in Christ. If I got up in front of you and every single week talked about how Jesus will forgive your sins and isn't that happy, you'd be happy. And you'd be desperately sick spiritually. And so all the reformers command us to give equal time to the Ten Commandments and to the cross of Christ, to repentance and to faith. All right? 
And then it says, by it a sinner, repentance, confession, by it a sinner, out of the sight and sense not only of the danger, but also of the filthiness and odiousness of his sins, as contrary to the holy nature and righteous law of God, and upon the apprehension of his mercy in Christ to such as are repentant, penitent, confessing, the sinner so grieves for and hates his sin as to turn from them all unto God, purposing and endeavoring to walk with him in all the ways of his commandments. Although repentance is not to be rested in as a satisfaction for sin or any cause of the pardon of sin, this is an act of God's free grace in Christ, yet it is, this repentance, it is of such necessity to all sinners that none may expect pardon without it. And then it says, as there is no sin so small, but it deserves damnation, so there is no sin so great that it can bring damnation upon those who truly repent. There's no sin that's beyond the reach of Jesus Christ. So, Proverbs commands it. Uh, the Westminster Standards command pastors to preach it constantly, namely the duty to take our sins to God. Now, that gets us to the fact that we need to confess our sins, but that doesn't get us to the fact that the Bible tells us that we're also to confess our sins to one another. We are not just to confess our sins privately, but also we are to confess our sins to other brothers and sisters in Christ, and at times we are to confess our sins publicly. Now, where does that come from? Oh, I'm sorry. Excuse me. First, I need to make another point. Um, we are to confess our sins and we are to be specific in our confession of sins. None of this sort of general sort of, oh God, you know I'm a sinner and I just humble myself before you. Now receive me uh, at the Lord's table or now I pray that my worship will be pleasing to you. If you go to your wife after a roundhouse fight and you say, honey, I know that not everything I just did was for the best. And you told her that she was ugly. It's not going to cut it. And it doesn't cut it with God either. Why? Well, because the whole reason you avoid saying, I'm sorry I said you're ugly, is because it's humiliating to admit that you told her she was ugly. Well, it's the same thing with God. If we go to God with a sort of one-size-fits-all confession of sin, we're doing that precisely to avoid humbling ourselves before God. And so what we need to do is we need to be specific with God. Now, what's the best way to be specific? The best way to be specific is, again, exactly what Martin Luther said to the parish visitors as they went out. They were to tell pastors to preach the Ten Commandments. And if you've ever looked at the Ten Commandments in any of the catechisms that came out of the Reformation, Luther's small catechism, you go to the Westminster Shorter or Larger, you go to any of them, you'll find an exposition of the Ten Commandments where they lay out all of the things that the Ten Commandments forbid us to do and command us to do. It's fascinating. And so if you can't keep track of your sins, go to the Ten Commandments. and It'll bring a whole host of things to mind. And it's a good discipline. It's very, very good. You think of a pharmacist who is a part of the continuing education, is constantly having to... Uh, go back and rehearse what he knows so that he doesn't give bad dosages to the people that he's caring for. All right? 
and it's specific. It's, 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 it's complications. It's the way that medications work together or fight against each other. It's indications to not give a medication for a particular condition that would be compounded by another condition. There's all these things, and it's specific, and they have to do it to keep their license. Well, Christians have to be aware of God's character in order to know how to confess their sins. Because, of course, that's what the Ten Commandments is. It's a record of the character of God and how we are supposed to reflect Him in our lives. So, first of all, we are to confess. Second, we are to confess specifically. And I could take you to a number of places in Scripture where it shows us specific confessions of sin. Um, If you go to the Old Testament where they're commanded to give sacrifices, you'll see that it lists specific sins. Then he's to go. He's to confess his sins. He's to bring an offering. And the priest will uh, you know, put that sin on that animal, and, and that sin will be taken away. And you go, for instance, to um, the account of uh, Ephesus. If, if you know what I'm talking about, let me, let's go there if I can find it. I knew I was going to have trouble keeping track of where I was this morning. Um, Hmm. Well, one of you help me, would you please? Oh, here it is. Acts 19. Go to Acts 19 if you would, please. And again, it's, I think it's more powerful in that it's just incidental. It just crops up, you know? Acts 19, beginning with verse 18. Many also of those who had believed kept coming, confessing and disclosing their practices. Isn't that interesting? And many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of everyone. And they counted up the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. Isn't that weird? Can you imagine the word of God growing mightily and prevailing if people in this town burn books? (laughs) I mean, you know, we'd be an exhibit at Barnes & Noble or Borders. In the front window. And yet, the Bible says here, so what? The church grew. The Word of God had power because what? They specifically confessed specific sins and they burned the articles of their previous idolatry. I had the wonderful privilege of going on a canoe trip up to the Boundary Waters on the one-year anniversary of Jody Staubness's breaking of his neck. Jody was a young man who, when I, Mary Lee and I first went to Partyville, up in Wisconsin, our first parish, uh, Jody was like probably 15, and he lived on a lake. In fact, it's his sister, his younger sister, um, Heidi, who Joseph, our, our son, is uh, uh, very um, close to, shall we put it that way, sweet on. Um, Jody was swimming, and they had a raft, and he, you know, he dove off the raft as he had done probably thousands of times in his life, But this one time when he dove off the raft, he went straight to the bottom, hit his head on a rock, and broke his neck. And he was was taken down to the University of Wisconsin Medical Center, and uh, I remember listening to 
the doctor, after a couple of days of examining him and looking at him, tell, tell the parents that they, he, he did not think Jody would ever recover the use of his body. Well, Jody today is uh, happily married, and he has a fused couple of vertebrae, but other than that, you know, he's a little stiff when he turns, but he's healthy. And the Lord used that to bring him to Christ, because Jody had been a, a dope-smoking, uh, um, uh, acid rock and roll dude, all right? And... What was so fascinating was that Jody said that as he was in that striker bed with those pins in his head, he had such intense pain that it caused him to think of what hell would be like. And he realized he didn't want to go to hell, and so he confessed his sins to God and asked to be forgiven and became a Christian. Well, a year later, we were on a canoe trip, and without my knowing it, Jody brought along a whole bunch of CDs and posters way up to northern Minnesota, and then one night on the anniversary, which happened to be on our canoe trip, he got them out, and in front of all his peers there, he burned them. A public confession of sin. Public. A good confession of sin. I actually was happy that it happened way far away from the adults of the churches, because I thought I would have gotten into trouble if I'd allowed that to happen back home. It's a sad statement about the church. Anyhow, confess our sins, confess them specifically, and confess them to one another. And if I go on reading in the Westminster Confession of Faith, it also addresses this. Men, it says, and that does not mean just uh, me, that means women also, it's used inclusively. Men ought not to content themselves with a general repentance, but it's every man's duty to endeavor to repent of his particular sins, particularly, as every man is bound to make private confession of his sins to God, praying for the pardon thereof, upon which and the forsaking of them he shall find mercy. So he that scandalizeth his brother or the church of Christ ought to be willing by a private or public confession and sorrow for his sin to declare his repentance to those that are offended who are thereupon to be reconciled to him and in love to receive him. In other words, yes, you're to confess your sins. Yes, you're to confess your sins specifically, particularly. All right. Yes, you're to confess your sins privately, particularly. But when you have caused scandal to the church of Jesus Christ, there are times to go privately to another believer, to a pastor, to an elder, to a deacon, to an older woman and confess the sins. And when it has been flagrant, when everybody knows about it, then you're to go before the whole church and confess your sins in front of the whole church, which you have scandalized by your actions. And then the command that those who have been sinned against, and when somebody confesses it, what are they to do? It says, thereupon we are to be reconciled to him and in love to receive him. This is to be no big deal because we ourselves are sinners. Okay? So, confessing sins, confessing particular sins, confessing particular sins privately to God, and confessing particular sins which have caused scandal to the body of believers or to a representative. And there are many times where really the best thing to do is to do it privately to the elders and then ask the elders whether or not it needs to be a public confession. We had a case a couple years ago where 
uh, something went to the police, to the IU police, to the Bloomington police, out over our internet list, and it was a sin of a particular person who was lying as he went to all these different people. So when that happened, we had him come in front of the congregation, and he did it by writing in this case, but he confessed his sin to everybody that he had lied to. We had another case where somebody was doing something in our worship services that was wrong. So when, when we found it out, we had him go in front of the congregation. We didn't do that because we thought it was such an awful sin that it needed... The, the humiliation of public uh, confession. We did it because the sin was against the congregation and therefore everybody who had been sinned again needed to hear the confession so that that man could then, and you know what happened, everybody came forward and as we have been forgiven, we forgave him. We hugged him, we loved him, and we said, it's done. And it is done. So, public confession is part of our responsibility. Now, I know that about this time, many of you are thinking, well, you know, I'm willing, to, I'm willing to consider this, but how can it possibly be that something that I have never seen happen in my life is something that the Bible commands? I mean, we should never think that way about the Bible. We shouldn't think that the fact that the status quo doesn't allow obedience to the Word of God means that obedience to the Word of God isn't required. But the fact is, let's deal with that, because the status quo is nobody ever does this, do they? How many of you have ever been in a worship service where you have, or how many of you have never been in a worship service where somebody has gotten up and has confessed a particular sin against the body of Christ? How many of you have never seen that done at a worship service? Raise your hands high. Now look around, everybody. A number of us haven't. And how many of you have only seen it once or twice? Okay, how many of you have either seen it once or twice or never? Okay. I mean, let's admit that this just doesn't happen, right? Now, why doesn't it happen? Well, it probably doesn't happen because, again, we're very sophisticated. And this is, this is modern times. And we've, as Barbara Streisand would say, evolved. I mean, who needs that anymore, you know? I mean, I don't need to get up in front of people and confess my sins. Everybody knows I'm a sinner, right? You've been in my home. You know? That was for back in the days when life was private. And nobody ever got together and nobody would know one another was a sinner unless they had an opportunity to hear it in the synagogue or in the early church. And I, I'm being facetious, but... I want you to admit to yourself that you do think this is gnarly and that you're not quite convinced that it ought to be done. And then I want to overwhelm you with citations from great church leaders. I don't often do this, but I want to do it this morning so that one of my favorite cartoons is a pastor preaching. And he says to the congregation, those aren't my statistics, but those are the statistics of a man who really knows what he's talking about. <laughs> There's a sense in which I think at times it's appropriate to give to a congregation uh, the convictions of godly men who have died and have gone before and that the church recognizes as great leaders. And I want to read several of them to you. Um, first of all, I want to read to you um, from... Uh, 
uh, Tertullian, an early church father. He says, where one and two meet, there is a church, and a church is Christ. Therefore, when thou dost stretch forth thy hands to the knees of thy brethren, it is Christ that thou touchest, Christ on whom thou prevailest. Just as when they shed tears over thee, it is Christ who feels compassion, Christ who is entreating the Father. Readily doth he ever grant that which the sons request. Tertullian um, says, Confession of sins lightens as much as concealment aggravates them. For confession is prompted by the desire to make amends. Concealment is prompted by what? By rebellious pride. Origin. See, therefore, what the divine scripture teaches, is another early church father, that we must not conceal sin within us. For just as it may be people who have undigested food detained inside of them or are otherwise grievously oppressed internally, if they vomit, obtain relief. And by the way, this is a frequent metaphor used by leaders of the church for the confession of sin. It's similar to taking... Uh, and a, uh, what do they call it? Epicac or something like that. When a child has taken a bad drug or something, a cleaning agent, and it causes you to purge yourself. And this is the metaphor the, that they use for confession. It, it says this. It says, If they vomit, they obtain relief. So they also who have sinned, if they conceal and retain the sinner, are oppressed inwardly. But if the sinner becomes his own accuser, accuses himself and confesses, he at the same time vomits out both the sin and the whole cause of his malady. Now I want to go to Augustine. Um, These that I read are more about confession generally, but Augustine gets very specific about this. (laughs) And... I hope some of you could guess what book I'm going to read from. It's called Augustine's Confessions. Wouldn't it be radical today if Christians wrote their autobiographies and labeled the confessions and had the substance of their autobiography be their confession of sin and how God dealt with them in mercy? Augustine says this, As I grew to manhood, I was inflamed with desire for a surfeit of hell's pleasures. Foolhardy as I was, I ran wild with lust that was manifold and rank. I cared for nothing but to love and to be loved, but my love went beyond the affection of one mind for another, beyond the arc of the bright beam of friendship. Bodily desire, like a morass and adolescent sex welling up within me, exuded mists which clouded over and obscured my heart so that I could not distinguish the clear light of true love from the murk of lust." Again, we have evolved, haven't we? You know, we're so far beyond such things. Love and lust together seethed within me. In my tender youth, they swept me away over the precipice of my body's appetites and plunged me in the whirlpool of sin. I was tossed and spilled, floundering in the broiling sea of my fornication. Skipping a little bit, he says, Nothing deserves to be despised more than vice, yet I gave in more and more to vice, simply in order not to be despised. If I had not sinned enough to rival other sinners, I used to pretend that I had done things I hadn't done at all, because I was afraid that innocence would be taken for cowardice and chastity for weakness. I mean, I don't think any of us have trouble understanding this. He says this, Much later in the book, he says, I beg you, my God, to reveal me to my own eyes so that I may confess 
what? To my brothers in Christ, what wounds I find in myself, for they, what? Will pray for me. I beg you, my God, to reveal me to my own eyes, so that I may confess to my brothers in Christ what wounds I find in myself, for they will pray for me. And there you have Augustine's confessions. What else? What about Calvin? Let me read a couple of things from Calvin. He says, He who will embrace this confession in his heart and before God will without doubt also have a tongue prepared for confession whenever there is a need to proclaim God's mercy among men and not only to whisper the secret of his heart to one man and at one time and in the air, but often publicly with all the world hearing unfeignedly to recount both his own disgrace and God's magnificence and honor. In this way, when David was rebuked by Nathan, he was pricked by the sting of conscience and confessed his sin before both God and men. Therefore, a willing confession among men follows that secret confession which is made to God as often as either divine glory or our humiliation demands it. For this reason, the Lord ordained of old among the people of Israel that after the priests recited the words, the people would confess their iniquities publicly in the temple. For he foresaw that this help was necessary for them in order that each one might better be led to a just estimation of himself. And it is fitting that by the confession of our own wretchedness, we show forth the goodness and mercy of our God among ourselves and before the whole world. And then listen to this. He says, Now, this sort of confession ought to be ordinary in the church. Again, Calvin, speaking on this text, James 5.16, he says, it's with good reason that James enjoins us to confess to one another. Let us take the apostles' view, which is simple and open, namely, that we should lay our infirmities on one another's breasts to receive among ourselves mutual counsel, mutual compassion, and mutual consolation. Then, as we are aware of our brother's infirmities, let's pray to God for these. We pronounce anathema. Now listen to this. Calvin. He says, We pronounce accursed, anathema, on everyone who has not confessed himself a sinner before God, before his angels, before the church, and before all men. We curse anyone who has not confessed himself a sinner before God, before his angels, before the church, and in short, before all men. Again, Tertullian. Where one and two meet, there is a church, and a church is Christ. Excuse me, I read that one. Then again, Calvin. Therefore, let every believer remember that if he be privately troubled and afflicted with a sense of sins, so that without outside help he is unable to free himself from them, it is a part of his duty not to neglect what the Lord has offered to him by way of remedy. Namely, that for his relief he should use private confession to his own pastor, and for his solace he should beg the private help of him whose duty it is, both publicly and privately, to comfort the people of God by the gospel teaching. Now, I'm out of time, and I'm just trying to make the case. You know where to confess. The Bible says this exhaustively. You know, one of the spurs that should, one of the things that should spur us on to confession is the fact that often God will wound us, sometimes through sickness, sometimes through tragedy in our life, sometimes through the discipline of losing a job. God will wound us to drive us to confession. We have secret sins we're refusing to deal with. Number two, when we confess, we should not do it generically. It should be specific. 
It should be for specific failures where we have not done what God commands us to do or we have done things he commands us not to do. Number three, these confessions certainly should be constant and private. But these confessions also at times should be to our pastors, to our elders, to the older women of the church, to our leaders. And then at times when we go to them, they will say this needs to be a public confession. And if you have the privilege of making a public confession, you should rejoice in it because it is wonderful to receive the forgiveness and the love of a full assembled body of believers, which is what I have seen every single time this has been done at a church where I've been privileged to serve or to be a a member. You just don't need to worry about the response of the congregation. Yes, there are always people who themselves do not think they're sinners who are prepared to judge you. But that's the exception in this church. Most of us here are very aware of our own sin and will honor you for humiliating yourself in front of the assembled body if your sin has been notorious and it needs to be confessed publicly. Now, there are a lot of rules and guidelines in dealing with public confession. Uh, There's a reason why I'm not now going into a time of public confession. Uh, It can be abused tremendously. There are many sins. You ought to think very carefully about confessing to someone else. And you ought to think very carefully whether that sin is something you should confess to your wife or to an elder or to a pastor. Sexual sins. Normally, it is wise to go to a man if you're a man and to a woman if you're a woman. Normally, it is unwise to confess a sin to your wife of a sexual nature unless you've first gone to a leader of the church and gotten their counsel on that. In other words, just because it's commanded doesn't mean that you should just, you know, ignorantly jump off the diving board when there's a stone at the bottom of the swimming pool, all right? Be wise about this. It can do great damage. But I'll tell you something, the damage we need to worry about in the church today is not the damage of doing this in an unwise way, nearly as much as it is the danger of never starting to obey a very specific command of God. Okay? So you're going to avoid one danger or the other. I'd like you to avoid avoid them both. But if you're going to avoid one danger or the other, let's start to obey this command and then learn how to obey it. Now, I'll pick this theme up again tonight more specifics. But I hope that this morning, as we come to the Lord's table, you will see, we must have washed. We must have judged ourselves. We must have confessed our sins. We must have confessed our sins specifically. We must have confessed our sins specifically and to one another, if we are Christians, because these are simple commands of God.